0: Okay, we're studying uh, what is often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And this is just my opinion, but this sermon, Matthew five to seven, the words of Jesus my opinion, the, the church has made a huge oversight in regards to this sermon. For instance, I grew up with, with catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism. Anybody else? Okay, good. Look at this. All right. Yeah, of course. We're in West Michigan. Um, and that, that catechism, I'm not going to like throw it under the bus or anything. It, it was there to indoctrinate us in what it means to be a Christian. Well, I think the Sermon on the Mount should be our catechism. When you think about our theme verse this year, if anyone claims to be in Christ, he or she must walk as Jesus walked that is not a suggestion that is a command we must walk we must walk as Jesus walked the Sermon on the Mount is as good as any part of the Bible not only teaches us how Jesus actually walked on earth but how Jesus is teaching us to walk how we can walk like him how we can live like him in every fabric of life. And there's so much at stake here. Because Jesus, very early on in this sermon, as we learned, doesn't just say that we're salt and light, but he says, we are the salt of the earth, we are the light of the world. We are doing this, learning to walk as Jesus walked, and not for our sake, but for the sake of the world if our world begins to rot and decay and grow dark, that is not on the world. At least Jesus would say that. He would say that is on us because we have become too much like the world and not enough like Jesus. So last week when I left, uh, I was really happy because God's majestic purpose for marriage was preached. I mean, God instituted this amazing reality uh, for us as human beings to reflect God, to reflect God's utter loyalty to us that, that come hell or high water. God says to us, I will not let you go. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will never cheat on you. God says it's my life for your life. My love is an everlasting love and nothing in all creation can separate you from my love. This is why God hates adultery. This is why God hates divorce uh, because God would never do that. Marriage becomes a place where we can be like God, where we can be totally devoted to another person as God is totally devoted to us even if it costs us our lives as it cost him. So last week we looked at marriage, this week we're gonna look at the same text because there's still some meat on the bone. Uh, We're gonna look at lust and sex. (laughs) So if you haven't been listening, I'm sure I got your attention. (laughs) Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 5. Verse 27 to 30, let's uh, stand for the reading of God's word. The words of Jesus, you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. I believe that's the sixth commandment. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is God's word. You can be seated. So Jesus in these verses is is also addressing uh, the problem of lust, the sin of lust. And I want you to see what, what Jesus just did with that commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. What he did is he exposed the phony righteousness of the Pharisees. And if you remember, the Pharisees were the most respected people of Jesus' day, they were the law-abiding Jews, as as Paul himself described uh, himself as a Pharisee. He says, as to the law, I was faultless. I always wondered, like, Paul, how can you actually say that or think that, even now that you're a Christian, as to the law, that that you're faultless? Well, it's because a Pharisee uh, would, would say righteousness is right behavior. So they can then look at this commandment, do not commit adultery, and say, yep, I've never cheated on my wife, so therefore, as it pertains to this commandment, I am faultless. And they did this with all of the laws. But if I had everybody right now raise their hand or stand up who has had an affair, (laughs) don't worry, I'm not going to do this. I think we'd all know the hands would be limited. Not just because people don't wanna like, raise their hand for that, but we all haven't done that. But if I had everybody stand right now who has sexually lusted, and I'm not talking about urges, I'm talking specifically about desires that then become thoughts That thoughts that then become fantasies, fantasies that get played out in the mind. Every honest person, minus some of the innocent children, would stand. And the Pharisee and all of us would be exposed. Because we're all guilty. Every last one of us. Because righteousness to Jesus is not just right behavior. It's far deeper than that. Righteousness is something that begins in our hearts with our desires, our wants, our motivations. Which now we can all be encouraged from this vantage point because we're all in the same boat. We all have the same problem. You don't have to look at me and figure out what my problem is in regard to this. Just like I don't have to look at you and know what your problem is in this. We all have the same problem. We all have the same struggles. Which is why when we judge someone else, we're really only judging ourselves. And lust is a problem. And a lot of times, it it does lead to all kinds of sinful behavior. I mean, all we have to do right now is look at our world and, and how our world is behaving in this particular area. I mean, sexual expression today absolutely has no limits. It pervades every aspect of our lives, and I mean everything. Everywhere we go, everywhere we turn, there is something to see, there is an invitation, there is an opportunity to indulge, and and it's all, all becomes so permissible and so normal. And then add to that, that it's so accessible. I mean, all of us right now are carrying a gadget in our pockets probably. Well, we're just a few clicks away from seeing anything and any way that we want it. Pornography. I mean, the stats, the stats alone are depressing. It is an epidemic. Prostitution. It's so easy today. It's everywhere. Affairs. Affairs not just on screen, but affairs in real life have, have become almost normalized. Hooking up. It almost defines our college campuses today. It's because we live in a sexually driven, sex-obsessed, sex-addicted culture. This is all rooted in the problem of lust. I haven't even mentioned rape, incest, sexual abuse, trafficking, pedophilia, probably more rampant than we even care to know. And think about the destruction. Think about all the lives that have been shattered. The marriages and families that have been destroyed and ripped apart. Relationships and relational health wrecked. Unwanted children. Aborted babies. Let alone all the guilt, all the shame, the sense of defilement that that shrouds so many. In fact, the ironic thing in, in, in regards to what I'm talking about That in making everything under the sun okay and permissible, people actually more than ever feel that they're not okay. Why all the guilt? Why all the shame? I thought we did away with that old-fashioned ethic of God and his values. simple God is the one who created sex God made us for sex God is the one who made us male and female, God is the one who made our bodies bodies uh, that that were made for sex, God is even the one who gave us desires and, and urges, which is why I no longer shame that in my life anymore God gave me that, he gave you it God created all of this. And and anything that God makes, what did he say? Behold, that's good, that's good, that's good. So don't ever think that when we talk about this area of sex that that, that God is prudish, or, or that the Bible is in any way prudish. I mean, that couldn't even be more far from the truth. Take some time even today to just read the Song of Solomon. If you're married, you ought to be reading that with your spouse. That isn't just this intimate, passionate love between husband and wife, but it's erotic. It's in our Bibles. I mean, just listen to this. And in in Proverbs 5, texts like this just show up with with their imagery. And sometimes because we don't communicate through images and metaphors, we, we, we miss what is being said. Um, the Proverbs 5 says drink water from your own cistern running water from your own well should your springs overflow in the streets and your streams of water in the public squares let them be yours alone never to be shared with strangers now what, what, what's, what's being talked about here? well, go back really quick the fountain is <laughs> male anatomy it's a male body part the cisterns, the well female anatomy female body part that stuff ought never be shared with strangers. Go on. May your fountain be blessed. Take that one home, guys. <laughs> and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doll, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Not wanting men. Come on. <laughs> God's not a prude. He's the one who made sex. But for a very specific purpose and a very specific place, he made it for marriage. Period. In fact, when you think about how creation ends, that God's final Crowning act of creation is what? Woman! Men, you missed it. That was another great spot for an amen. Um, <laughs> and God walks this stunningly beautiful woman down the aisle to Adam. And, and, and creation ends this with this marriage. And it doesn't just end there, but God says, the two of you shall become one flesh. Creation ends with sex. And God places sex in a specific place, and that place is marriage where two people make a till death do you, do we part covenant. And today, people want sex and romance without covenant. Part of it is because we don't even have a clue about what covenant is, let alone commitment, nor do we even know how to do it. But I do think this is why if you keep reading in the Sermon on the Mount, the next thing Jesus is gonna talk about is oaths, and I think this is uh, for a reason, uh, because people who belong to Christ are people who simply keep their word. They're people who can commit. They're people who can make promises and keep their promises. And that's why Jesus will say in that little section, um, we as Christ followers don't have to say things like I swear by this thing or I swear by that thing or I even swear by God's name. He says your yes is simply to be yes, your no is to be no, And when we say, with all that I am and all that I have, I give myself to you, until death do we part, am I in this? We stake our life on those words. That's covenant. If you remember the story of Joseph, when he's brought into the home of this elite Egyptian Potiphar, in fact, Potiphar puts him in charge of his entire estate. And soon his wife notices this, this handsome man uh, in, in her household who, who, who's running things. And this is what the text says. It says, Joseph was beautiful in his form and his appearance, causing Potiphar's wife to lust. In fact, those exact words to describe Joseph are the same words used to describe Joseph's mom, Rachel, Uh, The text says about his mom, Rachel, that Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. So Joseph obviously had his mother's beauty. Um, And Potiphar's wife lusts after this young man. And one day she says to him, trying to seduce him, have sex with me. And the text says that Joseph resisted. And then it says day after day, uh, this went on. Joseph, have sex with me. And every day, Joseph resisted until he finally fleed. What gave him the power? What gives you the power? Well, Joseph says something to her. He says, I I, I will not, for you are Potiphar's wife. Now, the fact that she is someone else's wife might not be a big deal to us, but this is a life and death matter for someone like Joseph because Joseph's family is Bedouin. And in his Bedouin backgrounds, covenants were literally cut in blood. If you remember Abraham, how God comes to him, makes a covenant with him and his family. This is an eternal covenant, and that that covenant that God makes with Abraham. They literally had animals that were cut in half uh, and and the blood flowing in the middle because that's how covenants were made in that day. They they were cut in blood to say, if I don't keep my end of this, this covenant, may I be cut to pieces. This is what Joseph is saying. He's saying, you're his wife. And this is a covenant that's cut in blood. Someone should be cut in pieces. I should be cut in pieces. My father should be cut in pieces if I would in any way violate this covenant. It's because God created sex for a sacred institution called marriage. It's within this covenant which is what then makes sex sacred, holy, So I say to this, how dare we apply our cheap, cultural, consumer values to the sacredness of sex? No wonder so many people today feel cheap. I believe the church is the last outpost today to call things holy, to speak of holy things in a holy way, and and, and not just speak this way, but more importantly, uh, we are, I think, the last outpost to live out the sanctity of life and the sanctity of marriage and the sanctity of sex within marriage. And and in that, trust me, we will be called by our world freaks, just like Joseph's a freak to his Egyptian culture, just like Abraham was was a freak uh, to his Canaanite culture. Uh, God's people have always been freaks. I mean, that's, that's, that's what the word Hebrew means. It, it, it means outsider, it, it, it means someone who is not like us. And Abraham didn't call himself an outsider, the Canaanites did. And, and Joseph didn't call himself uh, an outsider, a Hebrew. The Egyptians did. It's because they're so different. They were so distinct from the world around them. They were salt. They were light in these life-giving ways that brought healing to their world. The other thing Joseph says to Potiphar's wife, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin?" See, the, the, the church today doesn't just declare holy things to be holy, but we also have the guts to call wicked things wicked. We call sin, sin. And I know of churches and pastors right now who refuse to use the word sin. Well, how are you going to talk about certain things? I mean, that, that, that's like a hospital refusing to call cancer, cancer. Ah, oh, you just have a headache. Take a few aspirin and I think you'll be okay. Like if a physician did that, we'd call that malpractice. The church is committing malpractice today when we don't call sin, sin. Because sin is serious. It'll kill us. That's why Jesus says what he says. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eyes cause you to sin, gouge them out. That's exactly how you treat cancer. We ruthlessly remove it. Why? Because if we don't kill it, it will kill us. And according to Jesus, so will sin. He's not messing around. And and some of us, I'm surprised more of you haven't walked out yet. (laughs) Because some of us think this is so harsh. No, this isn't harsh, this is loving. This is so loving. Just like it's not harsh when when a physician diagnoses cancer and looks you in the eyes and says, you have cancer. That is a loving thing to do. Sin will kill us. Even worse, according to Jesus, it has the potential to send us to hell. That's why he says it's better for you to lose a part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Now, Jesus isn't prescribing a Band-Aid on this because he's already said sin is, is deeper than the behavior. So if... If, if the sin is deeper than the behavior, then, then the remedy also needs to go deeper than just changing our behavior. We need to go to the root, and the root of this is lust. It's the lust of our hearts. Now, the word for lust here in the original language is this Greek word called epithumia. You probably don't know this, and the only reason I know this, because you pay me to study this stuff all week um, so I can tell it to you. Uh, But this word epithymia is used all over the New Testament. Every New Testament writer uses it to describe what's wrong with our hearts. We have a lust problem. A serious lust problem. It's the word, for instance, in 1 John, the the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. It's that Greek word epithymia. Um, Now let me just show you how this word works. Uh, Thumia simply means drive or desire But this isn't just a desire or a drive This is an epi drive It's it's an inordinate, all-consuming desire For anything that makes us evil or leads us to evil It's not necessarily that we just want bad things, it's that we want things too badly. Uh, I think maybe the best English word for epithemia is in Romans seven, where two times Paul uses it and our English Bible translates it as coveting. And, and coveting is when we want anything more than God. It, it, it's, it's when our hearts are, are actually saying, uh, God, you are not enough and I need this to be satisfied. I need that to feel secure. And, and I need this to feel like I'm actually worth something. And now we're getting into why Paul the Pharisee could look, good at, all, look at all the commandments and feel pretty good about himself because he could say, you know what, I haven't killed anyone. I haven't committed adultery. I honor my parents. But in Romans 7, Paul says this little commandment to not covet, he says, it killed me. It came in and it shattered all my self-righteousness. Because this commandment went deeper than right behavior he says, this commandment exposed the wretchedness of my heart. Why do I do that which I don't want to do? Oh, what a wretched man that I am. And so me is, is, is not just this wanting. It's, it's this idolatrous wanting. And that's what we're talking about now. We're talking about idolatry. And what is idolatry? Idolatry is anytime we take anything. Anyone, anything, any place, whether it's good or bad, and we make that thing an ultimate thing and then substitute God for that thing, that's idolatry. Are you doing that with anything right now? Are you taking anything and making that thing an ultimate thing and then replacing God with that thing. That's why the first commandment is not just the first in order, but it's the first in importance when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, no idols. And it's why the greatest commandment is the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with everything that you are and everything that you have. I think John Calvin said it so well when he talked about the problem of our hearts. He says our hearts are like idol factories. He says they're just constantly producing these other things that we crave, that we worship, that we love, that we give our life to. And see, whatever these things are, we, we, we take these things, we make them into ultimate things. Things to the point where we can't live without those things. We have to have them. These become the real gods that we're worshiping. This is the root. This is our root problem. This is the sin under all sin. This is how sin works on our hearts. This epithemia, this lust, creates the idols, and then the, the idols fuel the epithemia, the lust. And by using this word, I want us to see how Jesus just blew up lust, that, that lust is far more than just sexual. A lot of times it is sexual, but sometimes it's the lust for money or the lust for power, the lust to be popular, to be noticed, to be praised, <laughs> likes. Who's in the likes? Who lives for a good like? <laughs> Some of you are probably laughing as loud as I would like to laugh right now, but. Um, there's a the lust to look good physically. There's the lust to look good morally and spiritually. Lust for a home, the next gadget, fashion, a vacation to live a certain kind of life, to do certain things. How about fandom? Think about how much time and energy, right now, this is, I'm pointing, if I point one finger at you, there's four coming right back at me right now. How much time and energy and love is put into a sports team? I mean, our culture is obsessed with sports. Or how about sports in our kids? Listen to how James describes this uh, in, in, in James 1 14 and 15. He says, But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire or lust. What word do you think that is in Greek? epithymia, and enticed, a better word for that is seduced. So we're seduced by this lust, and then after the lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, what is full grown, gives birth to death. And James is using the imagery here of an adulterous affair to say, Anything other than God that comes in and seduces our hearts by becoming our real source of our worth, our significance, our long-term joy and satisfaction, is just another lover. And these lovers eventually will become a fatal attraction. They will seduce us, and then they destroy us. And we can sit here and say with our lips... Oh God, you are my God and I love you so much and, 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 and you are first in my life and I worship you above all things. But do we? Do we? And so we have to go deeper than, than, than just our behavior. We, we have to look into our hearts. Let me just ask you a few questions. What do you turn to for your sense of value and worth in life? Where do you derive your your meaning and purpose in life? What's your true source of security right now? What do you turn to to make you happy, to find joy, satisfaction? However you answer that question, that's your real God. That's the God you worship. Because we can't play around with these idols, with our fatal attractions, because in the end, they're gonna do what all fatal attractions do. They're gonna rob us, cheapen us, and eventually they're gonna destroy us. This is why I plead with you the way I pleaded with my own heart this week. Because this thing fell first on my heart. Rod, get gutsy with your sin. Have the guts to admit the idols that are in your life. And be ruthless to remove them. To repent of them. Which might mean chopping some things off, gouging some things out. And when it comes to sexual lust, and all the ways that that, that we can be seduced into this area. Listen to what Freud said. Freud said, a person's spiritual longings are just frustrated sexual desires. Oh, really, Freud, that's what we're reduced to as human beings. Because the Bible says just the opposite. The Bible says our sexual desire is actually frustrated spiritual longings. Because God made our hearts as well, and he made our hearts to crave him, to thirst for him, and to truly only be satisfied in him. And this is why, yeah, we do need to apply willpower. Willpower, why? Because God made us in his image and being made in his image, he gave us a will, a will that we can exercise in our lives. It's why we can develop disciplines to say no. Yes, we're called to be in Egypt, but when there's a Potiphar's wife, we run, we flee it. We don't play around with it. We don't dabble in it. And if we get stuck in it, we cut it out. We remove it ruthlessly. I've tried all these things. I've applied all these things to my life, sometimes with success, but also sometimes with failure. I think the power that we all need is not within ourselves. The greater power is actually the power of a greater yes, a greater love, a greater affection that comes into our lives and replaces lesser loves, illicit loves, lesser affections. And God is that ultimate love. God is the ultimate beauty. God is the ultimate one our hearts desire. I've been reflecting on something all week. It has repeatedly brought me to tears. Those words that the text uses to describe Rachel, that she was beautiful, in form and appearance, and then those same words to describe her son Joseph, he was beautiful in form and appearance. Those words are only used two more times in scripture. Another time to describe Esther, and if you know the story of Esther, Esther won Miss Universe of her day because she was beautiful in form and appearance, as the text says. The only other time those words are used is in Isaiah 53 to describe Christ. And here it says, he had no form or beauty that we should even notice him or appearance that we should be attracted to him. In other words, God, the the ultimate beauty with ultimate glory, gave it all up. He became ugly, so ugly, so marred that Isaiah says that men literally had to hide their faces. Think about that. He gave up his beauty, he gave up his glory so he could make us beautiful. As Ephesians 5 says, without stain. Blemish or defect. That's how much he he loves us. No idol will ever do this for us. No idol will ever love you like that. Which is why God says, Come to me. Especially come at this place, the cross with all your ugly, all of it. And it's the place where God makes himself so ugly, our ugly, meaning God in his ugly, bearing our ugly, so he could make us beautiful, so he could wash us, heal us, forgive us cleanse us reconcile us redeem us recreate us this is the greater yes this is no band-aid john donne's famous prayer to christ take me to you imprison me for i unless you enthrall me shall never be free nor ever chase, except you ravish me. God, the reason our hearts can be ravished with you is because your heart is so ravished with us. God, may that greater yes that greater love, heal our hearts and cause us to repent and to turn to you with everything we have in Jesus' name.